Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Teach us to see by it, Lord. Teach us what it means, Lord. Reveal your truth. Dwell in our midst this morning by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like a, like a heaviness has rested upon us um, from hearing that reading. I want to remind you that um, we're in the middle of a sermon series on difficult passages from the book of Numbers. In other words, the book of Numbers. <laughs> and uh, Sarah preached last week on how the Old Testament is not just God's word for Israel, it was written for our instruction. And we talked about how there's these barriers that we have to treating the Old Testament as God's Word. Um, I, I mentioned uh, Philip Yancey, who, who tried to, uh, he wrote this book, The Bible Jesus Read, in order to try to convince us, you know, Jesus treated this as Scripture, maybe we should too. And to wrestle with what that means to treat it as Scripture. In, in general, I, I think... Um, there's two real reasons for this disconnect for us. One is there's a, a huge cultural disconnect between us and people of the ancient Near East. But secondly, like, like Marcion, we're tempted to really disconnect the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, from Jesus Christ, who we see in the New Testament. That's a temptation for us. And I think that that comes out especially when we read passages like what was just read in Numbers 5. I remember um, in middle school, I think I was in 7th or 8th grade, a friend of mine um, came up to me, and I, I didn't, neither of us went to church, but he was like, hey, my grandma has read the entire Bible. And I was like, whoa, are you kidding me? That's a huge book. And, uh, and he was like, dude, we should, we should read the Bible. That'd be awesome. And, you know, I, th I think part of it, what, what he thought it was awesome if we could say we read the entire Bible. <laughs> but um, so we decided to read one chapter of the Bible a night, starting at Genesis 1, okay? This is 7th or 8th grade Taylor and my friend Aaron, <laughs> okay? So I'm reading it, and I, I, didn't understand, I didn't understand much, I'll tell you that much. And, uh, but I, I, I really did feel like I somehow was communing with the Lord, like even at that time. And, uh, and uh, I was faithful for a time. My friend was faithful for much longer than I was. But um, around about the time that I got to the book of Numbers, I, I gave up. <laughs> I, uh, I have a preacher friend in town um, uh, who says uh, every once in a while, I'll be like, how was it on Sunday? He says, it was a great sermon of congregation shrinking proportions. <laughs> and uh, I'm a little concerned... <laughs> That, that this might be one of those. <laughs> um, from the Old Testament reading that you heard earlier, I'm sure that you're aware that I'm in over my head this morning. That we're in over our heads this morning. But just in case you don't feel sufficiently sympathetic or worried for me, let me share some snippets from an article that I read by a female Old Testament scholar in preparation for this sermon. In the article, Professor Carol Reynolds tries to persuade preachers to preach from the book of Numbers more often. However, when she gets to this passage in Numbers 5, she writes, We may as well admit it, this passage is a feminist nightmare. <laughs> and even more, she adds that, 
It's a human nightmare, at least from a present-day perspective. She says that the potential for abusing this passage is so great that one wonders whether it ought to be preached on at all. The preacher ought to wear a sandwich board saying, do not try this at home. <laughs> so are we feeling nervous yet? Nevertheless, despite all her warnings, she suggests that even this passage, if taken on its own terms, has the potential to edify God's people. And that's what I'm hoping for this morning. To treat this passage as God's word, which is what it is. Because so often we don't hear these kind of passages preached on and we're just kind of left to deal with them pastorally in our prayer, in our prayer closet. And we want to figure out how do we read this passage in light of the whole of scripture? How can we read these kinds of passages together? How can we read them with the church? My goal will be to follow Professor Reynolds' advice this morning. To take this passage on its own terms. And this means being honest with the text without feeling like we need to make excuses for it. For any modern reader, Numbers 5 stirs up several questions that deserve an answer. Why does this passage seem so degrading towards women? Is this true religion? Or is this concoction of holy water and dust some form of ancient Near East magic? Finally, what impl implications, if any, does this passage have for Christians today? We'll be revisiting each of these questions at various occasions this morning. But taking the text on its own terms also means understanding it within its own cultural context in the ancient Near East, and also within the wider biblical context, how it relates to the rest of Scripture. So first we'll look at the cultural context and, and then the wider biblical context. You may have heard this useful quote before. A text without a context is a pretext for a misinterpretation. That is to say, without understanding the historical occasion for a certain passage of scripture, it's easy to read our own meanings into the passage which may or may not be there. Paying attention to the cultural context of Scripture is not something new in the history of the church. In St. Augustine's Confessions, which were written at the end of the 4th century, he challenges those who read Scripture to look behind the cultural norms of the present, present in the text, whereby, quote, the ways of places and times were disposed according to those times and places. And instead, to try to understand God's unchanging character, quote, being the same always and everywhere. So when looking at Numbers 5, St. Augustine would encourage us to consider the cultural context of the ancient Near East. The world of the Old Testament was a very different world from 21st century United States. There were no grocery stores, so lack of rainfall could mean starvation. When neighborly feuds got out of, got out of hand, there were no police to break up the skirmishes. And something as common as infertility was a cause for tremendous social shame. We need to remember that the Old Testament was written in that kind of cultural milieu. And that some of the parts that confuse us the most would have been totally understandable to the people who received these texts. While it's true that sometimes the Old Testament merely accommodated the cultural norms of the day or simply brought greater order kind of a tweak here or a tweak there to what was already customary, more often than not, it offered something prophetically distinct. 
Therefore, Moses could say about the law in Deuteronomy 4.8, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Israel's laws were distinct because their God was distinct. For example, amongst most other people in the ancient Near East, there are certain customs that existed known as a trial, trial by ordeal, where a woman suspected of immorality would face an ordeal in order to assess her guilt. And many of these customs were extreme, such as causing a woman to jump in the middle of a raging river, or maybe even jump into fire. And if she was innocent, we'd trust the gods to rescue her. Now given this cultural context, the law in Numbers 5 seems rather mild. And it's very different in at least one important respect. In these other customs, a woman was put in perilous danger, and she could only escape with divine intervention. In other words, she was considered guilty until the gods proved her innocent. But here in Numbers 5, it's just the opposite. Drinking water with a little dust in it might sound gross to us. And while it could almost certainly cause some tension in a marriage, it would cause no real biological harm. Any negative effect could only come from God's intervention. In other words, the woman is innocent until proven guilty by God and by God alone. Therefore, in Numbers 5, if we take it in light of its cultural context, it kind of takes on a whole new tone. On the sensitive topic of women's rights, we see that God's law was prophetically distinct from the surrounding nations of the day. It protected women against violent superstitions, it offered them the possibility of full reconciliation within their household and community without having to bear any kind of scarlet letter for the rest of their life. And it assured, that every, it assured every woman that God, and not man, would be her final judge. In addition to the cultural context, the wider biblical context also sheds light on this passage. Reflecting on the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, Dallas Willard says that the aim of God in history is the creation of a community of loving persons with God himself included in that community as its prime, prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. So God wants to create a holy people and he wants to dwell in the midst of them. And this thread which runs throughout scripture is what some people have called the Emmanuel Principle. So in the Garden of Eden, we see God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But God and sin don't mix, so when they sin, when they fall from the grace of God, they're cast away, they're banished out of the garden. But God hasn't given up on his created intentions, so he gathers Israel, he gathers a people for himself out of Egypt. He leads them into the wilderness and he creates these laws where there's atonement for sin, where there's cleanliness, where death is dealt with in the kind of way that God can still dwell in the midst of his people, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And then later on, in the fullness of time in the new covenant, we see that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, at his first coming comes and he dwells in the midst of the people and he touches lepers and he cleanses them with his own divine life and he provides atonement for our sins. <laughs> At his second coming, Jesus will bring the story to completion. In the last pages of Revelation, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So there's this personal interaction, there's this tender interaction between the Father and his people. He will wipe away tear, every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more sin, there'll be no more disease, there'll be no more mourning and crying, and God is playing this compassionate role. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the story of the Bible. God wants to create a holy people, banish all darkness, and intimately dwell in the midst of us. So why go into all this? Because Israel's strict laws during the tabernacling phase about morality and death and cleanliness and uncleanliness only make sense in light of all this. Anything that would be out of place in the Garden of Eden... Or the New Jerusalem, disease, eating blood, sin, contact with death, is considered unclean. And while not all uncleanliness is sin, all sin is unclean. So in light of this, we see why adultery is taken so seriously. It's not simply a private sin. It's an affront to God's presence in the midst of the camp. It's an affront to God's presence in the midst of his people. You know, it's interesting... Um, Carissa and I are, are fans of Downton Abbey. And as this show has gone on from season to season, I feel like there's been more and more of like an anything goes policy on sexual morality in that show. So like it was more conservative at the beginning, but as time has gone on, you kind of see the writer's intention a little bit, just kind of warming you up to certain forms of sexual immorality. But interestingly, the one thing that it won't allow, the thing that it continues to condemn is there's no adultery that's still not allowed. Even, even, the, even the writer is like, hey, look, Lady Grantham, you better not be cheating on Lord Grantham, right? Or, or Lady Rose's uh, um, fiancé, better not be sleeping with that prostitute, right? Even in Downton Abbey, even these 21st century television writers still take the sin of adultery seriously. Because they know that you wouldn't sympathize with the characters as much if they started doing that sort of thing. In ancient Israel, when someone was caught in the act of adultery, the law of Moses required the death penalty. Here in Numbers 5, where there's no witnesses, a lesser penalty seems to be in view. But Deuteronomy 22.22 reads, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So there are two interesting things to notice here. First, the woman and the man are to be punished equally. So in the famous story of uh, the religious leaders bringing the adulterous woman before Jesus to cast stones on her, somehow the man who was lying with her is conspicuously absent. And I think Jesus noticed the injustice of that situation. But also, the reason given for the death penalty in Deuteronomy is to purge the evil from Israel. This penalty of expulsion through death harkens back to God's punishment of Adam and Eve in the garden. It also says something about God's wider purposes in human history. Okay, so we've by no means answered all our questions, but perhaps we have enough of the cultural and biblical context to give a more informed and sympathetic reading to Numbers 5. If you could please take out your service sheet and have the passage in front of you. We're going to walk through this together. <clears throat> From these open verses in opening verses in 
um, verses 11 through 15, it's clear that the occasion for this ritual is the husband's jealousy, his suspicion of his wife's infidelity. Not surprising, the ritual has a very solemn and weighty tone. So we notice, for example, that no oil or frankincense is used in the flower because they're symbolic of joy, and this is not a joyful occasion. However, we are explicitly assured that the husband's jealousy cannot serve as grounds for conviction. There are two distinct possibilities in view always throughout this passage, guilt and innocence. Of course, the trouble is that there was no human witnesses. Nobody knows the truth except God himself. So the idea is that by going through this ritual, the Lord himself is given the opportunity to judge and bring the truth to light, bring iniquity to remembrance. The description of the ritual begins in verse 16. The woman is brought before the Lord at the tabernacle. The priest takes a vessel, fills it with holy water, and mixes in some dust from the floor of the tabernacle. Now notice the symbolism of drawing dust from the floor of a holy place where no lay person is permitted to enter. It wasn't just any old dirt with any old water. The idea is that these holy elements would not have mixed with unholy deeds. So was the water itself bitter? Maybe. But Old Testament scholar David Wenham says that the Hebrew word hamarim, translated here as bitter, should be thought of as referring to the effect of the test rather than the taste of the water. However, if we don't read this passage carefully, verses like verse 24 might give the impression that the water will bring pain upon the woman regardless of whether she's innocent or guilty. But this verse describes what will happen. It's just describing what will happen only in the case of a guilty verdict. The more nuanced account is set forth in verses 27 through 28. Verse 27 says that a guilty woman will have her thigh fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. Thank you. This language of thighs falling away and stuff like that is, of course, very strange. But scholars generally agree that it refers to some kind of physical ailment which ultimately leads to an inability to conceive children. The Jewish interpretation in the Mishnah agrees with this. It says, in the member she sinned, she will be punished. So think about it. In ancient Israel, every tribe was to receive a portion of land as an inheritance from the Lord, to be perpetually passed on from one generation to the next. And the presence of an unknown or illegitimate child could mean dividing your inheritance forever. Therefore, the curse of inf inf infertility excuse me, wasn't simply punitive, it was practical. On the other hand, if the woman is innocent, the concoction will cause no ill effects. Verse 28 clearly states that if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and will have no problem conceiving children in the future. So the force of the ritual doesn't come from the water, and it doesn't come from some kind of ancient Near East magic. It comes from the Lord himself acting as judge. Now some may presuppose that God does not interact with the physical world in this sort of way, but that's a modernist assumption. It's not a Christian position. Professor Wenham rightly points out that whether the potion was effective in making a guilty woman sterile 
no more depends on magic than does intercessory prayer. Prayer and symbolic rituals both depend ultimately on the will of God for their efficacy. Now we may also dispute God's prerogative to judge in general. And I think we kind of do dispute that. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But even if we're not offended by the supernatural worldview in Numbers 5 or God acting as judge, the nagging question still remains, at least for me, why does it only speak of a jealous husband testing their wife? It doesn't seem to make provisions for a jealous wife testing her husband. Well, it's worth noting, first of all, that earlier in Exodus 20, verses 7 through 13, you could look at it later if you like, a man suspecting his neighbor of dishonesty regarding his possessions, note, a man suspecting another man, is permitted to bring his neighbor before the Lord at the tabernacle to swear an oath of innocence. And the same basic idea is at work here as in Numbers 5, which is that it's a weighty thing to be dishonest in the presence of the living God. And God will not fail to judge this kind of duplicity. But two additional points may be helpful to consider. First, rather than laying all the emphasis on what the husbands are permitted to do, let's make sure we talk about what the ritual forbids. The ritual forbids a husband to act as judge. It forbids a jealous husband to take matters into his own hands and requires him to bring the issue before the Lord and before others. A jealous husband would have to involve a priest, would have to expose himself and his wife to an elaborate ritual in the tabernacle court. And perhaps for these reasons, there's no historical record in the Bible or otherwise of this ritual ever being practiced. But second... Instead of highlighting the husband's right, we should underscore the husband's responsibility. He was given the weighty responsibility of leading his household into holiness. Even in the New Testament, male leadership in marriage is affirmed, but it's spoken of primarily in terms of responsibility to love rather than added rights or privileges. So we see in our reading from Ephesians 5, while women share in the call to teach and raise their households in holiness, there's a special sense in which husband, husbands will have to answer to God for the holiness of their wives and their entire households. This responsibility is not to be take, taken lightly, then or now. So I want to ask the husbands at Incarnation this morning, old and new, do you take seriously the call to lead your household into holiness? Are you willing to love sacrificially and lay down your life for that? This is not inequality. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So if the father is the head of the son, does that mean that they're not equals? No. The church has always affirmed that the father and the son are co-equal and co-eternal. To imply anything different is contrary to Scripture as a whole, it's contrary to the creeds. Likewise, it's contrary to Scripture for any Christian to deny the equality of men and women who were equally created in the image of God. Other religions may teach an inequality of the sexes. In fact, some do. But that's not biblical Christianity. So we've endeavored to wrestle with Numbers 5 on its own terms. 
preach a great sermon of congregation-shrinking proportions. <laughs> but a final question remains. How should we understand this passage in light of Jesus Christ? In light of the full revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. The beginning of the book of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This would include, of course, the greatest among the prophets, Moses. The Hebrew Bible affirms, excuse me, Hebrews affirms that even a passage like Numbers 5 is revelation from God, and we should too. But it says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So note that the coming of Jesus Christ brings forth a new era, excuse me, era, Let's get that one straight. In God's self-revelation. A new era in God's self-revelation. In Him we have a more intimate and clear picture of who God is than we get in the prophets. Why? Because the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His being. He's the image of the invisible God. So if the Scriptures would have stopped at the Pentateuch, or even at the end of the entire Old Testament, we wouldn't have as clear or as full of a picture. We'd be missing the centerpiece of Revelation, which is the incarnate Son of God and His death and resurrection. I want to read for you guys question number 30 from the, uh, the Anglican Catechism, which talks about how the Old and New Testaments relate to each other. It says, how are the Old and New Testaments to relate to each other? The Old Testament is to be read in light of Christ. That's kind of a read backwards. In light of Christ incarnate, crucified and risen, and the New Testament is to be read in light of God's revelation to Israel. So there's this circular thing going on here. We can't really know the God of the Old Testament fully without seeing Him through Jesus. But we can't really know who Jesus is, as Sarah was saying last week, without reading who Jesus is, who's the Son of Man, who's the suffering servant, who's the long-awaited King of David. We learn that from the Old Testament. As St. Augustine, Augustine says, The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The gospel changes the entire tenor of a passage like Numbers 5 from the inside out. How? Because on the basis of sheer justice alone, an unfaithful woman must drink the judgment of her adultery, just as Israel might, must drink the judge, judgment of their adultery. But the mystery of the gospel is not that we drink our own judgment. It's that the Son of God drinks it in our place. Amen. As he sweats drops of blood, Jesus prayed, My Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The cup that Jesus drank had more than tabernacle dust in it. Out of love for us, he willingly bore the greatest shame torture, mockery, nakedness, and even death at the hands of corrupt mortals, even death on a cross. Though he was sinless, he became sin. He bore the sin of the adulteress. This changes everything. After a close reading of Numbers 5, in its context, we might allow ourselves to begrudgingly admit that perhaps God who commanded such things might indeed be just, might indeed be loving. But after the cross of Christ... Could anyone deny the righteous love of our Creator? In her essay, The Greatest Drama, Drama Ever Staged, 
20th century author Dorothy Sayers reflected on the mystery of God, who willingly suffers in our place. She writes, For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death. God had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept the rules and played fair. Sayers affirms that man did in fact disbelieve and that God did in fact take the consequences. And in this great substitution and role reversal, wherein created man becomes the judge of a willfully restrained creator, we reach the climax of the Christian drama. Sayers summarizes the unthinkable implications. That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over another man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that God should play the tyrant, excuse me, but that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is the love and justice of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Like the woman in the ritual of Numbers 5, we all stand vulnerable before an audience of one, mm -hmm. our holy judge. We all stand guilty, and the waters are indeed bitter. But it is written, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus has taken the cup from our clammy hands, walked into the tabernacle, entered the most holy place, and drank the cup of our judgment. That we might dwell with God, and that God, Emmanuel, might dwell with us forever. 